Stay hungry, stay foolish. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Zai, a global fintech innovating within their area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. It's thanks to that sponsorship that I have this extra time to invest in the show and bring you great series like these. You can check Zai out at hellozai.com. Welcome back to this masterclass with the master himself, author of Built to Innovate, Essential Practices to Wire Innovation into Your Company's DNA, Ben Bansau. Today, we're going to cover the BTI framework, the seven step process to bring in innovation and building the innovating muscle inside your organization. Ben Bansau, welcome back to the show. Good morning or good afternoon for you, uh, Aidan. It's fantastic to have you back with us again, Ben. It's been an absolute pleasure. I want to tell our audience what to expect today. So we've done previous four episodes where we've toggled in and out of the multitude of case studies that Ben offers throughout the book. But today, we're going to focus particularly on the BTI framework, we'll explore Ben's systematic approach to innovating to help teams at every level of an organization to learn and master insightful customer centered ways of thinking. We're also going to explore his seven step innovating process and the associated toolkit that can help you choose subjects for innovation to pivot from supplier side to the customer side view of your business and to explore non customer space and also to consider paths for expanding your value creating activities. We're also going to explore how these tools can help you generate innovative ideas. How do you select your best ideas? and how to push forward once you do select those ideas. And finally, we'll share the seven step process that can be used as a routine practice to produce a steady stream of small but valuable innovations. As Ben says, when you use the process this way, the innovating muscle of your entire organization is strengthened. Ben, you start with the BTI framework as follows. It's a seven step process designed to be simple, generic, systematic, repeatable, flexible, adaptable, scalable, and visible. I'll use that as a way to tee you up to bring us through why we need frameworks in the first place. So let me maybe start by uh, explaining um, uh, where does this, um, this chapter 10, uh, priming the pump fits into the, 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 the structure of the whole book. So uh, as we discussed last time, Aiden, if you remember, uh, I made sure to have a part four to the book that uh, uh, gives some concrete um, uh, action items to people uh, and, and, and some uh, specific tools and techniques that people can, can use beyond uh, just the uh, the frameworks and the concept to about about building the innovating engine. I mean, this is this is in response to the typical question you might also have when you when, when you teach about innovation. People always at the end say, "Well, what what can I do on Monday morning?" Uh, so I'm going back in the office. Uh, this is all very nice uh, input, great ideas, but what can I do starting on Monday morning? So last time we talked about how you can create a very concrete uh, uh, organization to build your innovating engine. We talked about the structure, we talked about the, the roles and, and responsibilities that some people would have, like the I committee, the I coaches, the, the I trainers, the, I mean, I meaning innovation, uh, the, I, the innovation local coordinators. We talked about the processes, 
creation, integration, reframing the culture. So I wanted to make sure that uh, people who wanted to uh, start building, enhancing and maintaining their innovating engine would, would, would have uh, at least something to start to do with their teams. That's why it's kind of pumping, pumping the, uh, you know, jumpstarting your, your, your engine, jumpstarting it. Um, so this is really about offering people who want to do an innovation project uh, to know what to do on the morning. Where do you start? How do you start? Um, now, before going into the detailed explanation of each of the steps and, and, and why it's seven steps, uh, uh, I just wanted to share uh, the reason why uh, it, is, it, is, it is useful um, uh, to have a process when you're engaging in innovation activities. Uh, again, if you put people together, they will naturally start to brainstorm. And then once they've extracted all of the ideas they have in their head, they, they would know where to go next. So this is really about offering people a process um, and the process is really interesting because it is something that is systematic. It is structured. So it's a process. You start with step one. You go through some actions, some um, data collection, some information gathering. You get some output, and then you go to step two. And then step two has an output, goes to step three. You might come back to step two, loop again through it. But at least... Um, you're not lost. You know uh, what to do from, from day one until you finish. So, uh, so a process is um, systematic, structured. It is generic. A process, the process that I'm, I'm, I'm sharing is, is generic in the sense that it can be applied for a, a wide range of innovation topics. It can be used to develop a new technology, a new product, a new, a new process internally. It can be used to, uh, to, to, to setting in B2C, in B2B. It is also interesting to have a process because it is repeatable. You can do it, uh, I mean, it's a, the process is structured. Uh, as I will say, the tools uh, might be standardized, but the process is structured. That doesn't mean that it's algorithmic. It's not means, doesn't mean that once you have a process, you, you can just kind of automatically generate ideas. The process is structured. It's not taking away the room for creativity at the individual level within each of the steps of the process, but the process is, is, is structured. So I said it's repeatable, it's adaptable, so it can be adapted to different industries, to different circumstances, to different regions of the world, uh, different industries. Uh, the process is also something that is, um, uh, uh, you can train people into it. It's something you can train people. If you say, okay, uh, we want to learn about how to innovate. Well, a process uh, is a set of, of uh, as I said, of steps that are guided uh, by tools uh, where you just uh, go through uh, what the tools tell you to do. You generate information, you display certain behavior and you get information. The other maybe last point I would make about uh, what's nice about a process is that it's scalable. It's scalable. You can use the process um, to innovate a whole business unit, to innovate a whole company, a business model, or to innovate locally, in uh, internally in your HR function, to to innovate, uh, uh, you know, around um, 
logistics, IT. So it is something that can be scaled up or down. This is a process that um, can um, be put in place, can actually a, a, a team of, let's say, five to seven people. Uh, this is usually what I, what, what I uh, uh, advise. A team of five to seven people can go through the whole process in three to four months and generate between seven to eight uh, new meaningful business ideas that can be submitted to uh, uh, senior level uh, executives or to an innovation committee, the way that we talked about it last uh, in part four. Um, these seven steps are rolled out and uh, I typically uh, use a, a, a workbook. Uh, I give people a workbook that uh, has a whole set of templates, of questionnaires, of, um, of exercises that they have to do uh, together and with customers, non-customers as a way to generate ideas. So this is a totally uh, guided process uh, that people can go through in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a very limited amount of time. Let's introduce the seven steps. I'll introduce them at a high level. I might interrupt every so often with an excerpt, perhaps if you haven't mentioned it, because I love the way you write about these seven steps. But let's start with step one, because step one is something that's often skipped with the whole innovating process. You say, we need to choose a subject for innovating. The first thing you need to do to begin your innovating journey is a direction, a goal, or a general objective. This is the subject about which you hope to innovate. It can be a product, service, technology, internal or external process, organizational function, business model, or perhaps even something else that you feel is in need of improvement. This is step one. Over to you. Just to uh, also clarify things, the uh, the process in itself, as I said, is scalable and can be applied by uh, uh, anybody within the organization. And I see two major ways to use the process. It can be used... Um, let's say by uh, a senior a senior team, uh, maybe bringing even uh, expert consultants uh, as they're looking for a new business to enter or trying to create a new market. So this is, I would refer like if it's a sport uh, analogy, it's like putting a team together that is trying to go for the Olympics. So this is this is a major major project. Uh, uh, with, with, with fully trained people uh, going through the, the seven steps. Another way to do it is to use it uh, more at a local level uh, as a way to, 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 to develop uh, the, the innovating muscle of your team. Uh, we said that everybody has to be engaged in innovating activities um, as part of being uh, uh, engaged also in the execution and innovating engine. So what, what can you do with your team? So you can take a, a project and, and work on, uh, on the seven steps. So this is really about just like um, the sport analogy would be um, somebody developing a fitness program for the team. Uh, where uh, each individual in the team uh, try to strengthen, uh, uh, to become more fit, so innovation fit, and to uh, develop their uh, own individual uh, innovation muscle. So there are two ways to to, to use it. Um, so I, I will I will I will try to explain the different steps. 
And in your mind, you can say that it can be applied to either to go to the Olympics, a big project or a local project. So the step one really is about uh, choosing, choosing what you want to innovate. So of course, if you're the senior team, uh, th this is something you can, you can quickly generate. Uh, because you have a competitive uh, kind of a, a, a imperative and you, you're trying to create a new market or a new product. If, if you're a, a local team, you also have uh, um, a question or a problem you're trying to, to solve or a customer you're trying to uh, create value for. The only thing I would say, if you're working at a local team level, uh, if it's only you're using the seven steps as a way to train your muscle, is to choose a topic to innovate, a subject to innovate, because it gives you a focus. Uh, as the proverb says, any 1,000 mile uh, journey starts with a first step. So you need to have a sense of what are you trying to innovate? Uh, is this a product? Is this a, a, a function? But at the same time, you should be careful that this doesn't become a straight jacket, that if it is a journey. And if along the way, by interviewing or observing customers, non-customers, you discover that there's a, a, another innovation which is not in the direction that you were planning for, be careful not to kill it. You might actually change the topic because you found something more important. Remember, we're trying to innovate here. So it's not about creating another tyranny. You have to keep an open mind as you go through the process. So now I know what I'm working on, Ben. Step two is not to jump straight in. Step two is to decide who should be working on that. You mentioned teams of five to seven, for example. But now I need to pick the team. I need to choisir l'équipe, as you say in France. So over to you to tell us how do we do this? So now we're talking, let's say, about a, a, a team that is put together to work on an innovation project. Uh, to deliver, to deliver new ideas, but also to train their muscles. Um, so there are two aspects about organizing the, uh, the, team, the team. One is about the composition of the team. And the second one is about uh, uh, the governance structure, the coordination, the workings of the team. So the composition, um, we already know that when it comes to innovation, it is very important to have diversity. Uh, diversity in terms of mindsets, in terms of um, uh, background, in terms of training, in terms of gender, in terms of uh, uh, functions, I mean, all sorts of diversities. Uh, I like to add one, one layer of, uh, of diversity that is related to the, the value test. If you remember, the value test is about making sure that you increase the value for the customer, the willingness to pay, but at the same time, you also lower the cost structure. So I think it is very useful to have in the team people who uh, know about the customers, usually in marketing, sales, uh, people who are in contact with the customer. But it's also important to include a couple of people who know about how we would execute the, the idea people who are in operations, in, uh, in, in, in finance, in logistics, uh, because they will help the team iron out some of the potential problems uh, uh, at the time of the execution, or they will uh, uh, 
put put bring the the team to the reality that maybe this great idea is not easily implementable or it's not cost effective so i think it's 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 important to have both populations people who know about the customer but also people who would know about implementation so as as i say in the team you want people who know about the the idea formulation but also people who would know about the idea implementation uh, the second uh, big 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 uh, concern is how do you uh, organize the team how do you govern the team uh, and the point to remember here is that we're talking about a team that is uh, not the same kind of teams that we put together in the execution engine here we're talking about an innovating project team uh, and and we said it's a diverse team um, it's a team that does not necessarily have a boss uh, the, 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 the task is not structured the way that in execution problem solving task. We're trying to find problems. We're trying to generate lots of questions. So it is very important, and people tend to forget about that, that the team, this very unusual team, um, uh, diverse, uh, self-organizing team, has to discuss beforehand a certain uh, uh, set of rules or agree on a certain set of governance and rules of engagement before they start working on a project. If you don't do that, I've discovered over the many years I've been, I've been doing this, that you get in trouble sometime down the road. So it's important, and this is a question of creating uh, a sense of fair process and, in, and trust in the, in the, in, in the team. So uh, without going into the details, I would say that it's important that the team agrees on and discusses it. And this is this is an important dialogue in terms of developing the the interpersonal relationships also between people who don't necessarily work usually together, uh, is to agree on what's the goal, uh, why did we put this team together, and what's the goal? What are some of the some of the values that we embrace, uh, corporate values or values about how we interact? Uh, it's very important that uh, there's a sense of um, what are the rules of engagement. Uh, how do we uh, deal with conflict, uh, with, with, uh, with decisions? Do we vote? Do we go to the customer? Do we go to the boss? Uh, what are the roles in the team? And, and, and very often I ask people during these projects uh, over three to four months to rotate the roles. So the person chairing the, the, the meeting would be a different person. The person who would be the devil's advocate would be a different person and, and, and rotate the roles. It's important to also have a clear understanding ex ante beforehand of how we are going to communicate. Um, uh, how are we going to uh, share the information uh, with, within the team, outside the team, and, 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 and make some commitments, individual commitments to the project? Uh, the people are very clear about the, the, the commitment to this project. And if, uh, if, if somebody is not able to fulfill the commitment, uh, how do we deal with it as a team? So it sounds maybe overdoing it, but I realized over the years that if you don't take care of that, and even to a certain extent, write the rules and have people read them before they start a meeting, you get in trouble down the road. Uh, so I think it's very important to uh, uh, organize the project team. I love step three, and I love how you introduce this. You say, the purpose of step three is first to define the contours and size of the current mental box 
Love that. Because step three is about codifying the supplier side view, my view as the creator of a product or service. The next step in the innovating process, you say, is becoming clear about the subject for innovating as you see it today. This means defining the supplier side view of the subject that members of your organization currently take as they operate the execution engine that dominates their daily work. The goal is to answer the basic questions. Who do we think our customers are? How do we think we are creating value for them and for our organization? For example, if the subject is a product, your supplier side view will focus on questions like, what do we think are the drivers of willingness to pay for our target audience? How do we think customers feel about our products, quality and its price? Yes, I think this is a very important step. Um, and uh, I should have mentioned another aspect when if people look at the the seven steps, um, I mean, the, the circle, it's, of course, something that can be iterated. Uh, I would uh, uh, emphasize the fact that from step one to step three, you are totally in the supply side view of the world. And then step after step three, starting with step four, you pivot. You remember that you have to, you move from the execution engine to the um, um, innovating engine. So what I like to say is that innovation is all about thinking outside of the box. So you need to first understand the box before you can step out of it. And this is why it's important. This is why the step one to step three are fully anchored in the supply side view is to make sure that before the teams starts to, to go out there and try to learn from the customers that they collectively first uh, not only surface the, uh, the, 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 the assumptions that they all share, but codify them, make, him, make them explicit because they're there, they're implicit, people don't even realize. And even sometimes when they go and, and encounter the customers, they don't even realize that this is challenging their assumptions. So I think that step three is very important. It's an exercise where the team, remember it's a diverse team. Uh, so it's very important that they have uh, uh, some sense of what is the shared mental box that they have uh, as a company. So what business do we think we are in? Uh, uh, who, who, who do we think are our customers? Do we agree? What, what is the value we're creating for those customers? And I think it's very important to discuss this before you start to go and innovate. Uh, one, I think it's a very good way to socialize the, um, uh, the team together. Um, I, 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 my experience, I found a, a lot of debate, a lot of argumentation at that stage, uh, especially when people come from very different uh, uh, um, uh, backgrounds. Like you might have some people who are from uh, very senior, senior in the team. So I usually say, try to have somebody senior in the team. The only thing you want to make sure is that you don't have somebody and the person they report to in the same team. You're sure to kill innovation, but you can have a senior people in HR with a junior person in, in production, for instance. So it is important that these people who might have a different level of seniority uh, in the company, in the company uh, come together and, and discuss, discuss uh, all, all these uh, uh, shared 
beliefs that they have. Uh, uh, as I always also say, try to bring people who, who are old timers, who know the business very well, and together bring some new recruits, some new people who are quite naive about the business. Uh, and, and when you start to get this discussion about um, what value are we creating uh, for, for the customer, they might have very interesting, spontaneous questions that uh, will get people uh, scratching their head. I've seen, I've seen that. So I think it's a, it's a very important step where people bring all, you know, surface all the assumptions, uh, bring the data, you know? I always say, you know, bring the data. And that's also a benefit of having a team that is diverse because if you need cost data, the person in, in accounting and control or the person in finance in the team might use his or her network to get the finance data. If you need sales data, the person from marketing on sales in the team will, will have an easier time to get that, that data. So I think uh, uh, this is where uh, it's not yet the point where you go out and, and meet customers. This is something that you do internally. You try to get all the information, all the data, you create a nice uh, repository. You know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel, collect all the data that exists in the company, uh, immerse yourself into it. It's a great way to learn about what, the, what is the business of the company, especially if you're in HR, you get to understand what, is, what sales do, what, uh, uh, what customers want. Uh, so it's also a very nice way to socialize and, and to build these horizontal teams that we all talk about. I love it, Ben. It always reminds me of the Peter Drucker quote that the customer is rarely buying what the company thinks it's selling. And we figure out ways of selling our things. We've figured out the supply chain, the execution engine is humming. And when somebody tries to change that on a customer side, we struggle with that. And the next stage is ultra important stage four, step four in the BTI process. This is about understanding the customer experience from their point of view. And you say, now it's time for the team to pivot from the supplier side to the customer side perspective, to step outside the box and begin discovering what the outside world can teach us. As Steve Blank, former guest on the innovation show told us you got to get outside the building. To do this, the innovating project team must find new sources of information about the customer experience. And as you tell us in the book, and I highly recommend getting the book to see this as well. The best way to organize the comments your team collects from those expeditions out to the outside world is what you call a cut a customer utility table. So here, as you say, uh, Aidan, this is really the moment where uh, the whole team and its members uh, uh, physically uh, uh, pivot and switch from um, a, a, a supply side or execution uh, engine type of mindset to um, innovating or, or a customer side uh, mindset. This is this is where, um, as as you were saying, it is a time where it's not about staying in the office and, and looking at reports and and statistics. That uh, this is step three. Once you finish that, you you now you go out, uh, and as I say, you cannot you cannot outsource your ears. You cannot outsource your your eyes uh, when it comes to the customer. The whole 
team members, all the team members have to go out and, and, and engage with customers, uh, talk to them, observe them, touch them, have, have this kind of almost physical experience with what the customer is trying to do. And here we talked about it at length already. It's really the challenge of trying to understand the voice of the customer. And what I always insist on saying that uh, it's really the most difficult thing I found for people to do in this step, in this step is to learn how to listen <laughs> and uh, uh, not to try to always sell uh, and, 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 and direct, in a sense, uh, what the customer is saying. People have a tendency to try to control the conversation. I think this is a time where it's very important to be not in tell mode, but in, in listen mode and listen with a lot of empathy. So here again, uh, there are a set of like, like uh, for the step two and step, uh, step one, even when we're talking about selecting the team and, 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 and doing the supply side view, there are a set of tools that are in the, the workbook that I mentioned. Here, there are also techniques that people can learn about how to uh, engage with customers and 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 be and be uh, you know in a, in a in a mindful alert uh, uh, empathetic uh, mode. So I mean I, I'm not going to go into the, a lot too much details, but one is really to to go with uh, not closed closed ended questions but open ended questions. One is to really uh, go to the customer, not ask the customer to come to your office. Try to to go and be in their environment. Uh, uh, we might have talked about the the Philips kettle. Uh, try to live to live with the customer. Um, uh, I, can, I can mention about the, 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 the kettle example. Uh, um, uh, another one is to always go by two, for instance. Uh, one, one is prompting the customer uh, uh, to, to, to talk and, and tell about his or her life, what job they're trying to do. And the other person is looking for social cues. When is it that the customer gets excited? When is it that they, they start to get irritated? I mean, these are what I call weak signals that are very often more important than what people really tell you. And and, and remember, we're, we're trying to innovate. We're looking for these weak signals, things that uh, you know, competitors, uh, you know, competitors and other people will hear the loud signals. But the, the weak signals, you have to learn how to detect that. And then the second big challenge when you're uh, trying to learn from your, uh, your, your customer, your existing customer, we're talking about existing customers, uh, is what I refer to as the, the silence of the customer. The silence of the customers. So the things that the customers don't tell you, and they don't tell you either because they don't know themselves of this, this pain point. They might have a pain point, but... They cope with it. They don't consciously, uh, you know, uh, keep moaning about it uh, or, or, or desire. They might have a desire that they're not conscious about. So this is something they might not know about. Or it could be something they perfectly know about, but they don't mention to you as a supplier because they don't think it's your job to, to fix that for them. So this is this is the example I, I just kind of uh, was alluding to, which is the way that um, uh, Philips, the Dutch uh, consumer electronics and and uh, and uh, appliances company, developed the first um, li uh, lime scale filter 
a kettle, kettle, tea kettle with lime scale filters. So this was uh, at a time where they, they were quite dissatisfied with their market share um, in the UK market. So this is about the UK market. They were trying to boost their sales of kettles um, in, in the UK market. And so they, 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 they put a new product development team and uh, they brought in some consultants. And, and actually, uh, one, of, one of these consultants was my friend. And, I mean, he's my friend. And um, he, he, he told me about at some point, they sent some members of the team to literally live with some uh, uh, UK families. And what is really interesting is that at some point, um, they, they noticed uh, uh, the lime scale problem. They noticed that uh, people, when they were uh, pouring uh, the, the boiling water in a in, in cup of tea, there was this uh, little uh, thin coat of lime scale uh, in, in, in the cup. And of course, it's not very uh, uh, appetizing, I suppose. Um, but what was interesting is that the, uh, it's not that the customers didn't know about the lime scale problem. They were fully aware of it. And, and, and you could only see them kind of scoop, you know, the, uh, with a spoon trying to get some of the, some of the, the lime scale out of the cup. But uh, this is not a problem. They would have complained expressly to the kettle manufacturer. They would go and complain to, to the water authorities, for instance. So this is an interesting problem because this is not a problem that the customers would voice. Remember the voice of the customer. They don't, they don't, they don't voice it. They, but, but Philips noticed the problem and it didn't take them a long time to develop, uh, design this um, little lime scale filter, which now you find in, in, in many kettles. Um, and, and it helped them uh, boost the market again. So this is a very good example of what I call the silence of the customer. Beautiful. They knew about the problem. They didn't think it was a problem with the kettles. So the kettle manufacturers never heard from them. But you need, as, as, a, as an innovating team, to fully understand what is the job that the customer is trying to do, but also what happens before and what happens after. If you think that the, 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 the designing the kettle is only about you know, the boiling of the water and that's all, then you're missing out on a, a, a lot of potential innovating ideas that may happen before or after. I mean, another, I'll just mention it, I won't explain it, but if you think about um, IKEA, for instance, creating uh, playgrounds in their stores, uh, they're solving a problem that customers have before going to the store, which is what do we do with the kids? And that's it. So you're solving a problem for a customer. If you solve a car, I, I will tell people, if you solve a, a problem for a customer, which they don't think it's your job to solve for them, but you do, they'll love you. And then what, once you observe the customer, uh, I, I won't go through the details, but there's a, there's a specific tool that we use. I call it the customer utility table, where you just mechanically uh, uh, observe what you what the customer is doing and write down what you see and then you just code codify this code this color code it whatever you observed uh, with I, I tell people don't use your brain just 
look at the customer and write down what you see. Then once you're back, once you've collected all your comments, codify them in red for painful pain, pain points, in blue for things that the customer likes, in green things that people, uh, customer seems to wish for, and then put this into a table. So you have a, a, a very visual, uh, 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 let's say, analytical tool that helps you make sure that you cover the whole space of the life of the customer. I think this is, this is the way that you can um, uh, take away the, the blinders that you have because we don't know who started it. If it's uh, us or the customer who started by creating the box about what the product should do or what the value we're creating for them should do. So I think it's very important to broaden that, uh, that, that vision uh, and, and, and understand what happens before and after. That reminds me of Henry Ford and the quote about if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse because it makes me think that just as we as creators of a product or service get stuck in our mindset and the way we do things around here. So does the customer, the customer gets over familiar with the way a product works. And it's called functional fixedness. For example, functional fixedness is I look at a chair and a chair is a chair or a paperclip is a paperclip. But actually, you ask a child that same question and a chair can be a rocket ship or it can be a den or a paperclip can open a phone and it can do a multitude of different things if you break that functional fixedness. This brings us nicely to the next stage, which is stage five, step five, where you talk about exploring non-customer space. This is where it really, really gets interesting because in step four, the innovating team pivoted from the supplier side view to the customer side view. Now it's time to stretch even further time to build a bigger box or think outside the box even further. The sixth path analysis is also part of this. This is work that you did with your colleagues in INSEAD, the authors of Blue Ocean Strategy as well. That's part of it as well. We're not going to have time to talk about that today. But this is underpinning this part about exploring non consumers. So absolutely, Aidan, I think the, the it, as we said, you know, innovation, innovating is all about stepping outside of the box. So you remember the, the, the first box that we all have is a supply side view box. So this is step three, making sure we codify and we have a, 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 an explicit uh, uh, picture of what the team shares as the box, the current mindset, the current mental box. Then we said, okay, let's step out. To step out, we go to the customers, the existing customers, or people who know about the life of the customer. We we went out and 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 listened to the customers, observed them, tried to understand their job to be done, and we are enlarging the box. We're stepping out of the box, and now there's another step where you can go even further. You know, enlarge the box even further. You go to what uh, we refer to as non-customers. So non-customers is taking into account that um, you might be focused uh, internally or externally on who you're trying to make happy today, who you're trying to, yes, uh, to make happy today. But these, these people, um, uh, you might be able to create value for, for other people, or you might uh, be able to create value for other people who will create additional value for your customer. So it is about, uh, I use a very simple tool which is to simply ask people to build 
the ecosystem of their customer. Who are the people who are in connection with your customer? So it could be your customer's customer if you're in B2B, it could be your suppliers, it could be um, um, a prescriber, it could be a regulator, it could be an influencer. So think about all the, the people who are connected to your customer, who can either provide you information when you're doing the uh, step four, or they could be people you can create value for to create more value for your customer. Let me let me maybe take a, a, a simple example that I had an experience with. I, we did a lot of work with uh, Axo Nobel a paint company. So a, a big part of the business is B2C to sell paint to uh, families who are trying to uh, you know, refurbish uh, the, the baby's room. Now, very often uh, people uh, will call on professional painters to do the painting of the room. So what the team did, instead of focusing on the, on the, on the, on the family buying the paint, they tried to focus on the painter and, and what is the life of a painter? Uh, because the painter is very often the one who uh, recommends paint manufacturers who might even help the family choose the paint. So what they looked for is ideas about how to create more value for the painter. And by creating more value for the painter, the painters started to you know, be more sympathetic to, to their brand. So here you see this is innovation, not about the customer, but about somebody who influences or prescribes uh, uh, to the customer. So this is what the, the non-customer space is about. And again, as you mentioned, this is leveraging some work that has been done before, looking at where can you find non-customer space in a systematic manner? As you, you, you well understood by now, the seven steps is about using a systematic routine to look for new questions to ask, new problems to solve. So we looked at the customers, now we're looking at non-customers. So where can there be non-customers? Um, and this is about being very systematic uh, about, about, about discovering that. So once you have found the non-customer space, you ask yourself the question, why are these people non-customers? What can we do to turn them around? So for me, to find the, the, the non-customer space is just like uh, the, um, the old uh, uh, film, photo film, where you had the, the negative, where you would appear in, I think you would appear in, 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 in black on the negative of the film, and the rest would be white. So for me, whatever is customer is customer, existing customer, and the rest is non-customer. So for instance, I, I, I won't uh, go through all the past, but if you say our existing customers are our industry, let's say, for example, the, the case of Fiskars, for instance, uh, uh, in their business for garden tools. So they have the existing customers, which is gardeners. And the problem to be solved is mostly about cutting, you know, trimming trees and, 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 and you know, uh, gardening around, uh, around the house. But there was one business which was not part of their uh, portfolio uh, was the watering business. But once they understood uh, their customers, they realized that 
there was a, a, a lot of uh, opportunity to enter into a non-customer space, which was the watering business. So this is an adjacent business they they, they found out by not looking at the existing uh, uh, business, but at the at the at the non-customer space. So this is a, a very simple example. Um, another path, for instance, is within your own business, you might be focusing on a certain customer segment. So the non-customer space would be all the other segments or the segments that you haven't kind of uh, explored so far. So an example I mentioned in the book is, is Nintendo. They had this fantastic success with uh, Game Boy. Uh, I suppose most people are familiar with this. This is really a blockbuster product. But what is Game Boy is really focused on which customer segment is really adolescent boys, heavy, heavy duty uh, gamers. So now if you ask yourself the question, who are the non-customers? Well, you have lots of non-customers there, market segments that are not even uh, touched on. So this is how first uh, Nintendo developed uh, uh, game, game consoles for girls not for Game Boy for boys, but they, they targeted the girl uh, uh, market. And then after that, they started to target with Nintendo. Everybody remembers Nintendo Wii, where the target was not heavy duty uh, gamers, boys or girls, but was for adults and families. So developed a new product for different segments. So this is non-customer space. Uh, this was not their initial market. Uh, and now they even have uh, uh, some some uh, games for uh, Wii games for um, nurse nursing homes for elderly people to help them reeducate. So this is this is another one. Uh, I, I'm I'm not going to go through all of the past, but uh, uh, it it can it can be either about enlarging the 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 target uh, population, or it can be enlarging the uh, scope of what you do for the existing customers, like we talked about, um, for instance, um, I I IKEA uh, uh, and, and, and solving a problem that is not what uh, traditional furniture stores do, which is taking care of your baby babysitting uh, problem. Um, it can be across time. So in, this is what I call the back to the future exercise. This is past number six, it's back to the future exercise. So instead of focusing, so if you say, who are the customers today, right? Path four is about existing customers. So you've you've done all the work of path four. You understand your customer, you generated. I forgot to mention that, but once you have your CUT table, you have lots of comments, then you solve, I mean, you have to solve them, you know, by clusters. And that's a first set of ideas that you generate as a team. Then when you go to the, to the non-customer space now, you, uh, you, you're starting to ask the question, so who are the customers that we're focusing on today? So the non-customers then becomes the customers of the future. So back to the future exercise is exactly what it is. It is about, just like uh, uh, if people remember the movie, you get into uh, the DeLorean and you go five, seven, 10 years in the future and try to understand what would be the life of your customer in five, 
seven or 10 years, and then come back to the, to the present to develop ideas uh, that would they would please them in, in, in the future. So you just look at the trends, all the trends, technology, demographic, social, environmental trends that are affecting your business today and try to project where it's going to be in five, seven or 10 years and then come back to the present. Uh, a very simple example, uh, I did some work with a, a bank in, uh, in, in uh, uh, the UAE uh, this was for their high wealth uh, customers. So they knew who their customers were. So they asked themselves, who are our customers of the future? And they realized that the customers of the future are the, the kids of their current customers. They're teenagers. So they asked themselves the question, these people in maybe five, seven, 10 years, they will become our customers. So what can we do today to create value for these people? And they studied, they studied this population and they understood that if they delivered, you know, these people were very keen on, let's say, um, trying to go to US universities. So they started to, uh, one of the idea was to uh, organize college tours uh, uh, for groups of these uh, kids to go to the U.S. and, and visit some of the top colleges in the U.S. Um, and help them with their application forms. Uh, they discovered that these people were, were, were crazy about uh, uh, football. So they organized trips for them to go as a group, which is also a nice way to socialize them together and build a network to go to see the classical uh, Real Madrid and, and, and Barcelona. Uh, but you see, this is this is not an innovation that is creating value for the existing customers. It's about customers of the future. So this is this is how you can um, expand, if you will, the box, go out of the box of your existing customers. I should I should say, however, that uh, uh, from my experience, um, uh, the the step four is very rich when people start to listen to their existing customers uh, in a different manner, with a different perspective. There's a lot of potential with those. Of course, you can completely change your business model, create new markets with the, uh, the non-customer space. But uh, my experience, uh, I've seen a lot of people generate fantastic ideas, even up to step four. Step six and seven, Ben, are almost like two sides of the same coin. One is like, okay, I've got my funnel, I've got ideas now. They're serving a purpose I've explored beyond the mental box that I was stuck in. Now, what do I do with those ideas? How do I decide which ones I proceed with? And then maybe how do I present them to the organization in order to get backing, maybe some funding to fast prototype those ideas. These are the final steps before I bring an idea to prototype. Yes, absolutely. So just to kind of uh, make sure we, we are on the same page, uh, uh, out, of, uh, uh, out of step um, four, looking at the, the customer and generating ideas, as I said earlier, almost mechanically out of the CUT uh, table. Uh, I mean, there's a mechanical way to generate the questions and then try to solve them, generate ideas. Step uh, five, looking at non-customers, each path, you can again generate one or two ideas per path. 
And then you you might end up. I mean, again, I'm talking about my my experience doing this with 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 many firms over the years. Uh, uh, some of them actually featured in the book. Um, you might end up with maybe 20 to, to, to 25, 30 ideas altogether. Now, you need to do some sort of a filtering. So, of course, many of these ideas are, are actually connect or are very similar. So you can create clusters around those ideas. So you might come back to uh, uh, maybe seven, eight ideas. And then as a team you need to decide which ones will you be presenting if you will to the innovation committee or to a senior 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 board members uh, and 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 then again i pro- i propose always what i try to do in the in the in the in the methodology if you will in the workbook is that i'm starting with a point of view if people don't know how to do it here's a tool how to do it but if people and i found this uh, in many cases, people, once they see the list of ideas that they've generated, they have a very clear idea which one is the best one or which ones they want uh, to present to the board. Uh, but if they don't, I propose some very uh, uh, systematic, uh, uh, analytic way to look at the data and generate the idea the, the idea, or, the, or rank order the ideas the way that you want to present them to the innovation committee. And then the innovation committee... Uh, uh, gets together, uh, we'll probably get uh, ideas from different teams across the organization. And then there's what we call uh, some sort of a beauty contest. We call it a a visual fair, where it is, again, very important. Something I didn't mention about the tools and the process. The tools is is, is a way to create uh, some standard form, some standard uh, 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 way to structure the mind of people. So each of the tools structures your way of thinking. So the tools that are based on supply side view, they structure the the thinking in supply side view. The the, the tools that are for customer view, they structure the, the thinking process by looking from the customer side. The tools also represent a fantastic language uh, uh, very often I see even uh, uh, companies that uh, I've worked with many years ago still use some of the tools as a common language to talk about their business. So this is this is something that is uh, very important. So when when the teams present, it is very useful to use very few uh, slides. I usually uh, enforce a rule that the presentation should not be more than seven minutes long. Uh, and and uh, three to four slides, and we know which slides they are. It's uh, what is the value of the customer? Uh, how does it help us create value for the company? Uh, where is the information coming from? And 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 how would we implement it? And and that's all you need. If you have a brilliant idea, it doesn't take long to explain it. And 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 you should explain it using the language of the customer anyway. So and then and then and then and then as many uh, stage gate processes work, there's a presentation made to some sort of a senior level committee. I call them the innovation committee, if you remember. And then and then this is where after you know some prototyping, um, it's good to propose a prototype. Uh, you know the the committee will choose which ones to fund, to test, and eventually to uh, move into the execution engine. So this is the step where after the seven. Uh, uh, steps, you move some of the ideas into from the innovating engine into the execution engine. 
What a wonderful five-part series, Ben. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was absolutely wonderful learning from you and reading this book in depth, getting time to read it, so revisiting chapters, etc., and then listening to you, the author, explain them has been just an absolute honor. And I thought everybody should check out this book if you're interested, if you're a consultant, a, a future consultant, if you're a coach within your organization of innovation and I coach, as Ben would call you, or a CEO of an organization, or a head of HR or L&D who's trying to implement a culture of innovating, this is the book for you. And you can check out more about that book on www.btithebook.com as well. Loads more resources there. Ben, I thought maybe I'd leave you with the final word because of the immense contribution you've made towards the show, but also towards our listeners as well. I feel a great rapport with you. I feel we've developed a rapport over the last time. I feel we're going to collaborate again in some way in the future. But also I feel our missions are similar that if we can bring new information to people, new toolkits, they can make better decisions and lead better lives, whether that's products and services that they create that serve humanity in a better way, so be it and more power to you and people like you who bring this content and this information to people. So over to you, perhaps, to give your final message from this five part series to our audience. Well, I mean, it, it comes back to the, the essence of the book is really this belief uh, that we can democratize innovation. Uh, that anybody can innovate if uh, you give people the permission and give them the tools uh, and create the space. So, I mean, it, it, we talked about how an organization can create this space, the innovating engine. And if people don't, uh, uh, are, don't know what tools to use, we have some tools to start with. And of course, as I many, many times said, I'm not dogmatic about the methodologies. In fact, you should change methodologies every once in a while. But, but there are lots of tools out there to help and give, give the innovation power to everyone in the organization. So all that remains is for me to pass on my heartfelt thanks to our guest who dedicated so much of his time so that we could learn from his tools from decades of learning and integrating and working with companies as a consultant, as an advisor, and as an INSEAD professor and dean. It's been an immense pleasure sharing the time of this author of this brilliant book, Built to Innovate, Essential Practices to Wire Innovation into Your Company's DNA. Ben Bensau, thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Well, I thank you, Aidan. I really uh, appreciate it and enjoyed it. Thank you so much. What a wonderful five-part series we have had. I'm so grateful for the time that we've had with Ben Ben Sao. Very valuable time. I've learned loads. I hope you have too. I want to thank our benefactor, our sponsor, Zai. Zai, the global fintech, innovating within its area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com and I'll see you soon.